Welcome back to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast with Aidan Bocolo. On this episode, listen to my conversation with Henry Wilson, CEO of the world's leading coffee publication, Perfect Daily Grind, with over 5.5 million page views in 2018. Perfect Daily Grind was founded in 2014 with the aim of increasing transparency, collaboration and innovation within the coffee industry. Henry, thanks so much for coming on the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. It's great to have you on. Great to be here. Thank you. I was curious, can you uh, give a bit of the backstory of how you launched Perfect Daily Grind? What, what were you doing beforehand and what ideas did you have before launching? Um, so I didn't really enter coffee in the conventional sense. So I did do a brief stint as a barista in Ecuador. But um, actually, before working and setting up Perfect Daily Grind, I used to work with a management consultancy firm based in London. And uh, what happened was I graduated from university, much like a lot of people do, went straight into a city job and found that I didn't really enjoy it. So in the evenings, I basically worked upon setting up a blog. And at the time, it was never supposed to be a business. It was just basically me writing about the things that I found interesting with coffee. And then over time, it grew and it grew. And after about, say, a year at working at this job in the city, the, this blog had grown into a publication. And then I had to make a decision whether I wanted to work at Perfect Daily Grind or whether I wanted to continue this other job. And the reason why I decided to go into coffee as opposed to any other industry is because um, I took long uh, holidays during university. And also I took like a gap year or so sabbatical before and after university. And I remember in one, I did a particular trip where I traveled from Costa Rica to Guatemala, which was around four months. I really didn't know what I was doing. Like I didn't know anything about coffee. My Spanish was very poor. But I just knew that I was interested in learning about more about where coffee came from and how it was produced. So I traveled up from Guatemala, uh, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and just met a lot of producers. This spent a lot of time with their farms. And then it began to kind of change my perception of what coffee was. And I began to identify gaps where I thought that like Perfect Daily Grind could fill or identified things that people should be writing out that perhaps they weren't or just noticed things that I thought the industry needed, basically. Yeah. What was some of your biggest learning experiences when you were going on those travels? I think a lot of time, like, uh, so obviously I'm from London and a lot of my perception was that like, uh, I didn't really understand, like, I guess you could say the work behind the cup of coffee. And a lot of people talk about that, like, uh, but I really got a, a strong understanding. So I did everything from say, spend two or three days on a farm, um, learning about the protocols of how it works with pickers, how they're paid and how they lay out the farms and how do they pick the tree. I did things like I spent like a day in a fertilizer shop in Nicaragua to learn about like how do producers purchase fertilizer, what impacts their decisions when they buy it. I went to like a dry mill. But basically I went along the whole supply chain and spent time. And one of the key learning experiences I learned that one of the first things is that there's a lot of producers that have great coffee or have the ability to produce great coffee. But what they really lack, lack is access to market. So they, have the, they lack the access to the buyer who's willing to pay those price premiums or is able to and to make that connection. And another thing that I learned is that to produce a great cup of coffee, it takes a lot of work and there's a lot of steps involved that the consumer and often the roaster is not aware of. And then you also learn that there's a lot of small touches small processes, small things that happen in producing countries that basically change your perception of how you think things should be done. So it's very easy, for example, in England to be like, well, why don't producers all produce, I don't know, Pacamada and Bourbon and Geisha in El Salvador, because that's what the market wants. And 
why don't they just do intercropping with avocados and, and cacao plants? Because that's then they'd make more money. And then when you get there, you learn a little bit more and you realize that actually that people have thought of these things and that there's been various initiatives. For example, I went to a farm where they tried putting uh, avocados in Central America. And then what they found was that the uh, locals walked across the farm, damaging the trees, the coffee trees, to get access to the avocado. So it actually had a negative impact. So as opposed to them getting a nice price premium or getting an additional income, it actually jeopardized their existing income. And then you know about all these little small cultural differences or local processes, which affect that kind of changes the way you think about things. Because it's very easy to be sitting in Australia and the UK to be like, why don't people do this? And then when you get there, you're like, ah, now I understand why. And it all becomes a lot more complicated. Yeah, so it's having that understanding of that whole process and not just your sort of viewpoint or, or perspective and somewhat, I guess, uninformed opinion for those that haven't been over there and haven't experienced everything that the farmers are doing. And like you said, the cultural differences and everything else that you just, you know, you might have a fantastic idea, but the, the execution is can be something different. You talked about before about getting access to market for the farmers. Has that improved over the last couple of years? Is it easier for farmers to connect with buyers? In a word, yes, but it's quite complex. So there has been a growth over the last few years of the concept of direct trade. So, and that revolves around the roasters basically skipping out the middlemen and paying an enhanced premium directly to the farmer. But there's also a lack of education around that and what that involves. So what that involves for the roaster is pre-financing the shipment, taking the responsibility of quality control and various other processes. There. So basically, it's a lot more work and rules and information that you need to understand and master to be able to do that. There has been the growth of platforms which have attempted to enhance this. But it all comes down to one of the challenges, the biggest challenges, the pre-finance and the quality control. Because it's not just about connecting the buyer to the seller. It's about ensuring that the buyer gets the product they want when they want it for the price that they want it. We've also seen, for example, there's been a growth of coffee events across the world. So coffee festivals, forums, trade shows. And they've been great for facilitating the link between the buyer and the, the seller. I mean, but often what happens as well is that those that are able to attend the show can do so and can meet buyers, but often those right at the bottom or, or the least economically advantaged or the, the most underprivileged producers, they are kind of stuck because it obviously to produce great coffee has a cost and then to travel to meet the buyers has a cost. I think as well, like uh, we're seeing a movement at least over the last couple of years where people are moving away from pure the concept of direct trade, buying direct from the producer and sort of saying that other alternatives are bad. And there's been a more growing respect for the importers that do great work and do the right thing. Because there are a lot of importers which take on a lot of responsibility, take on a lot of risk to basically ensure the roasters can get the coffee they want at the price they want and also pay when they want, which is a big part as well. The answer is that there is increased opportunities for producers, but not all producers. And there's different ways to access the market for producers. So there's ways which are higher risk for producers where they can perhaps get higher incomes, which you could say direct trade and examples like that. And then, but then there's also ways such as going through importers or exporters. And then there's also growing local consumption markets as well, which is quite exciting. Can you delve a bit more into that, into the growing local markets? Obviously, one of the challenges you have is there's a lot of different coffee producing countries, each with their own unique cost of production. So how can you possibly compare, let's say, a Brazilian farm with a farm in El Salvador. If El Salvador has a dollarized economy and everything has to be done manually, a lot of the processes 
it's a lot more costly to do so than, say, Brazil, where the land is flat and is able to have mechanization. One of the advantages, if you can set up a home consumption or uh, internal consumption, is that Brazil or El Salvador, for example, no longer has to compete with Brazil because it's just competing with other producers in the local market. And what we're seeing is that a lot of, particularly this year, because coffee prices have been low, the sea market price has been low. So with regards to internal consumption, it represents a lot of opportunities because if you compare different coffee producing countries, they all have different costs of production. It might be due to labor costs. It might be due to their currency. It might be due just to the way that the cost involved in running the farm and the, the local taxation laws. But what uh, increasing internal consumption enables countries to do is that the producers don't have to compete across international boundaries. And so what we've seen, particularly this year, where coffee prices have been low, is that people are turning towards their internal markets and thinking, well, how can I get like uh, the best specialty coffee shops here and the best roasters to, to buy my coffee? And I think it's a really exciting opportunity because if you can grow internal consumption, it has a number of different impacts. So obviously, it creates an alternative market for producers for their high quality coffees. So to get better, better money for their coffees, because one of the problems farmers have is they often have a lot of coffee. So they can sell some of it abroad, but they're still left with the vast majority they need to do something else with. Another advantage is like if we can grow the internal consumption in, in all these different coffee producing countries, then a lot of the sort of value is retained. And not only the economic value, but for example, producers can be more connected to their local coffee shops, to their local roasters, and they can see their coffee there. And I hope that it will make producers feel more proud and to, have, to kind of improve their connection with coffee because a lot of young people don't really feel motivated to continue to work in coffee because the economic returns are not great and also it's high risk and it's not really like cool. People want to go and work in the city. But if like a lot of uh, young producers start seeing their parents' coffee in all their local coffee shops and people are talking about it saying, wow, this coffee is amazing, it's delicious, I think that's a strong impact. Like uh, it can be empowering for people. Yeah, a massive change. What do you see as the key drivers to driving demand locally? Is it as simple as more people opening up cafes? So it depends on the country. So every country has its own unique drinks that they have and different rose profiles and different types of coffee that people like to drink. I think that sometimes we need to focus on increasing consumption of coffee and then moving on to specialty because it's tempting to be like, let's go straight ahead and get people to drink great coffee. But first you have to be like, well, let's get people to drink coffee in general and then sort of gradually upgrade them to specialty. Because you think about all of us, probably yourself included, like you didn't wake up one day and just say, hey, I want to have a single origin <laughs> V60 from Ethiopia. No, it was a process and you gradually reach that. And you like, and it's kind of nice because you reach that journey on your, on your own. But I think that one of the key parts is education. So basically... Not only at a producer level of about how to improve, say, crop yields and understanding global markets and what the roasters are buying, but also at a local level so that when, say, a consumer in Colombia Googles uh, what's a French press, they can find a good resource or they can Google uh, what's natural processed coffee, they can find a good resource. So that's actually why we started PG Espanol, which we're just going through the analytics last week and it has around 350,000 uh, unique visitors from... Uh, Spanish-speaking coffee-producing countries, for example. So I think one of the key things is education. And then another challenge is that you can open coffee shops. And obviously, that's great because then people have a place to taste and enjoy great coffee. But it's not quite as easy often in coffee-producing countries as in other countries because the cost of credit can be a lot more expensive. So to borrow money to create a business venture is a lot more challenging. So 
there are challenges involved there and people have to approach it in a certain way to make sure that they get the best results. And probably one thing that I've noticed is a lot of the most successful, I guess you could say, specialty coffee roasters in uh, producing countries, they diversify their coffee offering to meet the local market needs. So they don't look at, say, what's trending in California and Brisbane and implement that at a local level. They try to understand, okay, what is popular currently in the market and how can I adapt that to basically have better coffee, but at the same time, create a familiar product. So I'd say that is something that's very important. It's about creating something which is accessible, which engages with the local needs of the market whilst also offering better coffee. And then another thing which I've seen more and more of is that there has been a growing connection between where coffee comes from and the consumer in coffee-producing countries. Because it's not like every consumer in, uh, say, in Mexico or, or Brazil knows about coffee farms and has visited farms and knows where it comes from. They will have a, probably a better understanding than most of us in coffee-consuming countries. They don't have like a complete awareness. So there is a growing movement for that to connect people to uh, basically where the coffee comes from as well. Where's that movement being driven from? I think a lot of the specialty roasters that, are, that have grown and been successful, they've like worked out that, okay, well, the international roasters from abroad, they really want to know about where their coffee comes from. And they pay more because they get to connect with the farmers and understand where those price premiums go. And then I think at the same level, a lot of the uh, successful specialty coffee shops and coffee producing countries, a lot of them are owned by exporters or direct trade farmers. There'll be farmers that are already selling to these key markets and they'll think, hey, well, I'm selling amazing coffee to the UK, to Australia, to the United States, to Germany. Why can't I save some of the best coffee as well for the locals to enjoy? So what they do is they try to apply the principles which have been successful abroad and implement them at home. And then they're obviously having success in doing that approach as well, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, there's successful models and then there's unsuccessful models in every country. But I think that it's a testament to see there are more and more specialty coffee shops opening that are offering uh, not only just a cup of coffee, but different methods, different varieties, different processes. So there's definitely a growing demand. So it's really, really good to see. And it's something that I'm really excited about because there's a lot of coffee. And the specialty market, I mean, in terms of consumption, is still relatively small compared to global consumption. So we need to create new markets for these coffees. Yeah, for sure, to get it out to more people. I mean, there's been a lot of change in the coffee industry even just from, from my experience here in Brisbane, to see where the coffee industry is going to change, say, over the last five years. Where do you see the coffee industry going into the future? So the easiest way is to probably break it down by the supply chain, and then I'll go through, say, the barista, cafe owner, roast, producer, and then I'll sort of go through each step. So it's because it's hard to outline general changes without just talking about, say, drink trends. But... I think what we're going to see at the barista level is an increased professionalization of the career. So we're seeing a movement from, say, a job or a student job to being a viable career. And this has been enhanced by the barista championships and also by the growth of the specialty cafe, which has basically enhanced the role of the barista as an ambassador. And key to the success of a cafe is often having that great barista who can fulfill the experience of the consumer and make sure they get the best cup of coffee possible. So that's one thing. I think at the cafe level, in certain consuming countries, we're going to see the growth of what I like to term like the third wave coffee franchise. So we're moving away from just being the purely independent small coffee shops to having the larger chains of coffee shops, which are producing really excellent coffee, but are at scale. So instead of, say, having one shop, 
they're having 10 or 20 or 30. And if you look at different uh, consuming countries, whether it be Greece, Russia, UK, the States, there are examples which you can see for that, and even Australia as well. At a roaster level, I think this is a really interesting one because this is uh, what the producers are most closely following. I think there's going to be a scrutinization of a lot of the terms and ideas which you've kind of taken for granted. So the idea of direct trade, the idea of micro lot, the idea of relationship coffee and various other terms are going to get, begin to be more analyzed because we kind of got away with it when we were beginning, just talking about all these words and sort of loosely applying them to fit whatever our business needs was. So there's no dictionary definition for, say, a micro lot. So a micro lot could be 88 coffee produced in a thousand bags, or it could be a really, really small volume of coffee from a really small farm, or it could be a single variety from a really, really large estate, which has been isolated and separated. So I think we're going to see like these people are going to begin to analyze and scrutinize a bit more these terms and probably begin to say, well, what do they really mean? And then also, like I mentioned a bit before, is that the roasters, there has been a tendency in the market to champion the role of direct trade or the notion of direct trade. But at least what I've seen recently is that a lot of roasters are finding it convenient to go and work with local exporters and uh, or importers that are able to support them on the pre-financing side of the shipment, the quality control and then allow them flexibility to pay basically slower and don't have the headache of, say, storing coffee. So that's something which is, which is interesting. And also, we're going to see the growth of new origins. It's interesting because we see a lot of people very concerned that coffee prices are going down and that the producer is not getting enough money, but at the same time celebrating that we're going to have an increased supply of coffee from other origins. So I think it's always good for the industry, for these new coffees to enter the market, because I don't necessarily think that all the coffees are competing with each other. They have a different market. But it's going to be interesting to see how these new coffees say. We've recently seen China, we've seen Laos and various other origins and how they fit into the marketplace. And then on the importer-exporter side, I think that we, we may continue to see some consolidation in the market of, the, of importers, like we've seen over the last couple of years, basically because it can be quite expensive. And as basically the producers need to be paid early and then the roasters are used to flexible payment terms, someone's got to basically be the financial institution, someone a bank in between to pre-finance that. So we might see some more consolidation on the importer's side or we might see some changes to how that's run. And we also might see the implementation of technology. So there's a lot of uh, new platforms, whether it be blockchain or whether it be uh, online uh, I guess you say e-commerce platforms to connect the buyer to the seller. And it'll be interesting to see how these play out and whether they do fit the needs of the market and also if the market's ready for it. Because you can find a solution to a problem, but unless someone's willing to accept there's a problem, then the solution is redundant. Also, down at the farmer level, so we're going to, I think that, like I was just in Brazil recently um, for International Coffee Week, and I was really impressed seeing the producers and seeing like the high quality coffee they're producing the resources they're investing, and basically the consistency they have about basically producing large volumes of coffee at scale. Obviously, you can't just say this is representative of Brazil because it depends and there's a number of different regions in Brazil, all which have unique microclimates, unique coffee profiles. But in general, say when I was in Brazil, I was really impressed by the level of organization of the producers and what they're able to invest to basically produce better coffee. When I go to other countries in Latin America, it's a little bit different. So I think that Unless we see an increase in coffee prices, we will see young people um, moving away from coffee 
Uh, they'll be moving into other industries, perhaps moving to the city, working in uh, offices and technology and other solutions or other jobs, basically. And what we might also see is unless we can provide the farmers, the smallholder farmers with better, better pay or better prices, there will probably be consolidation of farms, which you're already seeing to some degree. Because to run a farm, I think there is a romantic idea attached to it, like being a small farmer running your own farm, but it's also running a smaller business. It's running your accounts, understanding your costs, understanding all the costs of all your processes, the cost of production, managing your finances. And for every producer, not everyone wants to do that. So when they're presented with the opportunity to be part or to work with a larger farm, it can be more convenient. And then obviously the larger farm benefits and economies of scale and Let's say if all the small farmers all go on separate trips and travel around the world to try and meet buyers, then that had a significantly higher cost than, say, if one large farm does so. And then the large farm might also be able to be more flexible to work with the roaster directly and be able to give them the, the finance they need and, and such. So that's just kind of like a brief overview. In terms of consuming trends, I've definitely seen that in the UK, for example, that we're kind of catching up with Australia and the US and we're taking cold brew seriously. And it's moved from being just like a, like a hot trend to being like a viable drink that, pe- that cafes are now thinking, and even supermarkets thinking, well, okay, we need to offer this because there's going to be demand for it. Definitely seeing the growth of alternative milks, whether that be oat, whether that be almond, whether that be macadamia. And that's something which has really exploded over the last year or two years. So basically, with the growth of drinks such as the flat white, the cortado, which are somewhat understood, like if you ask the majority of consumers what's the difference, they wouldn't be able to tell you. But with that growth has come the growth of alternative milks. And then we're also seeing the growth of methods and the demand for single origin coffees. So they're like, even my parents now, I mean, obviously I work in coffee, so they have a, they're very much exposed to, to the industry, but they want to know what a Kenyan tastes like. They want to know what a Colombian tastes like. They just don't, they don't just want to have a cup of coffee now. They want to know a little bit more. They're not at the level of climate where they want to know the farm name, the varietal, but they want to have that bit more traceability and transparency. And I think that's representative of the whole market. Yeah, that sort of more deeper understanding of what they're drinking, where it comes from, and what to expect when they drink it, as opposed to just drinking it for the caffeine. Thank you for sharing about where where the whole industry is going and where, where you see it going across a wide range of perspectives, from the barista all the way up to the farmer and everyone in between. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, just to talk a little bit more about Perfect Daily Grinds, you've obviously grown it with, you know, from yourself to, to where it is now, the one of the largest coffee publications in the world. How did you sustain your growth over that time? Did you have core values that you relied on to achieve that growth? Yeah, so it's funny that you raised that because last week, because we're reaching the end of the year, I've now been thinking about, well, how, how can I turn Perfect Daily Grind from being a company which is successful for say two or three years to be a company which will be here in 50 years time. So I've been really thinking about this recently. And I think one of the key principles which drives what we do is not only just the pursuit of profit or doing something because like uh, we see an opportunity in the market, but more because there's a why behind it. There's an understanding at a deeper level. So everything we've done and when we present with an opportunity or we see things that we might want to get involved in, we kind of come back and look at our core principles and core values. So they tend to relate to several parts, but one of the key parts is it comes down to education. 
So when I started in the coffee industry, like one thing that I kind of noticed is that there's a lot of people buying great coffee. There's a lot of importers and great specialty roasters. A lot of baristas doing amazing work. And everyone talks about education, but a lot of people are focused on something else. So what we wanted to do is really positively affect the supply chain and make high quality education accessible. With Daily Grind, like obviously every, anyone can log in for free, read the articles whenever they want, be it day or night. And in whether they speak English, whether they speak Spanish, you get access to the information. And another part is a key component was empowering uh, people along the supply chain. It wasn't a case of just, say, myself reporting on behalf of the producer or on behalf of the roaster and saying that this is what these people want. But it was more about creating a platform to give them a voice and to share their insights, which we can obviously verify and follow up on. And then also like empowering a range of people because I wanted people to start seeing the, the various acts along the supply chain in a different way and to be humanized and to understand their role and what they do and the value of their work. And when it comes down to the producers, a lot of consumers or roasters can be a bit, a bit misunderstood about what actually happens. And there is a tendency, at least on a consumer level, to see the farmer as a campesino. And what, I, what we really want to do is to talk about the farmers as coffee professionals so that when people read and learned about how it is to operate a farm, all the steps involved, they actually changed the way they saw the farm and they thought, wow, this is, this is a businessman. This isn't just a farmer. And then also on, as part of that, the farmer will see how we write about what they do and how the industry respects it, and it will change the perception of themselves or at least contribute towards themselves not, and their kids not saying, well, look, I want to go and work in the city. I want to work in coffee. But that's sort of the key values. I mean, it comes down to, for us, is positively impacting the supply chain through education and empowerment. And then you can deconstruct that through every project we do and make that relevant. In terms of growing Perfect Daily Grind consistently year on year, so we spend a lot of time basically really, really, really analyzing like what's valuable to our clients and the people we work with and who supports us. And how can we extend that and continue to do that? And how can we one step ahead of them? So we're not looking at, say, other uh, coffee media and thinking, ah, oh, we need to be doing that. We're looking at the whole media landscape. For example, last year, I spent around 186 days in coffee-producing countries visiting these places and being like, okay, what do we need to do? So it's about consistently trying to keep one step ahead. So for example, around three years ago, we started the Spanish publication. We identified a need for that. And we were the first ones to do that on the digital level at scale earlier. And then we decided, okay, well, we need to create social media platforms in Japanese and Korean. So we did that. And then we decided that actually that a lot of the future in terms of uh, consumption of content is in video. So we created a video studios. And then we sort of continued with that. And then we identified that actually that a lot of people or actors along the supply chain, not only do they require a media outlet such as Public Daily Grind, which can inform, but they also require a partner to support them in their digital marketing. And then we open that avenue. So it's about consistently like adapting to the needs of the market and basically being guided by the market. So I mean, if we do something well, then we get rewarded and we do more of it. If something doesn't work, then we don't do it. And it's hard because sometimes like I've been really, really proud of something and it's like my baby and I've built it up this project and it just hasn't worked. And it's like, you kind of think, well, do I carry on with this because I know it's brilliant or do I have to, do I accept that actually maybe that, the ideas before it's time or the ideas are relevant. Yeah, and that's a hard decision to make. And I think it's sort of what you were talking about before about adapting to the what the market wants goes back to what you were talking about earlier about local coffee growers then supporting their own local markets, hitting upon the same sort of issues of you know understanding what your market wants and, and giving it to them. 
whether you know you're a small local operation or, or like Perfect Daily Grind, where you're um one of the world's the leading coffee publication in the world, I think it applies no matter what stage you're at in business. Yeah, and I mean, when it comes down to business, everyone is just people as well, fundamentally. So you can build a big business plan about how you want to evolve a concept and get people involved and get clients. But really, it's about understanding the people that make the decisions behind that. And that was something that I had to learn because when I really started, I thought, well, I'll make this great thing and people will support it because they like it and because it's the best. And then I realized the less I connected with the people that I wanted to work with and really I have to, like, worked alongside them to help them to identify the value and then to also really understand what they want to get out of it, was I going to be successful? Because it's not just about what you want. It's about what the other person wants, about what the client wants or, what, or the value for them. And I think particularly in the coffee, we're bad at the coffee industry. So it's a supply-led industry. So often what happens is that a producer will make coffee and say, I've got amazing coffee. It's the best. It's 86 microlot. It's geisha. You should buy it. Whereas maybe a different way would be saying, tell me more about your coffee programs. Which origins do you currently work with? Or how does that work? Tell me about how the issues you've had. And then be like, ah, so based upon that, I can tell you that we have this coffee. Or even when you go to a coffee shop, for example, in London or in Brisbane, rather than you going in a coffee shop and the barista sort of telling you, this is the best coffee for you because I know and I'm the expert, actually kind of inviting the consumer to share their, their ideas and then invite them to be part of the decision. Because I think we've all been there. We've been to a coffee shop and we thought, wow, I mean, I've come up for a cup of coffee and the guy's giving me an educational lecture. Very true. Involving everyone in that process. And then it feels, you know, as a consumer, you feel more involved in the whole thing and then you, you feel listened to, I think, at the end of the day. Listen to and appreciate it as opposed to um, lectured upon. Yeah. And like I said, everyone's just people. Everyone wants to feel valuable. Everyone wants to be part of the decision. No one wants to be told what's best for them. Yeah, of course. People want to make up their own mind of, of what's best for them, not, not being told by somebody else what's best for them. For sure. Exactly. Uh, Henry, uh, one last question before we wrap up is what's your definition of the grind? So the grind is obviously very relevant because we're perfect daily grind. And for me, it's the day in, day out work that perhaps people don't see or don't want to think about, which contributes to the overall success. So when you have any project or any business, there's a lot of work that happens behind, behind the scenes. It isn't glamorous, it isn't sexy, but it's absolutely necessary for the project to be successful. And for me, that's the grind. And then the perfect daily grind was sort of the idea of that, almost like an oxymoron, so that Obviously, it links into the grind and grinding coffee. But then also, like, it doesn't have to be a chore. The daily job, the daily career, the industry you work in doesn't have to be a chore. It can be both a pleasure and a job. Yeah, I love the name. There is a balance between the, you know, the day-to-day sort of processes that you have to get done, but also sort of enjoying the process as well and, you know, having that balance between the two. Uh, for those that want to find more about Perfect Daily Grind, what's the best way for them to uh, to learn more? So, yeah, so if people want to learn more about Perfect Daily Grind, I recommend they head to the website, so www.perfectdailygrind.com. Or alternative to follow via social media. So Instagram at Perfect Daily Grind, Facebook, Perfect Daily Grind, Twitter, Perfect Daily G. Uh, we even have a YouTube channel. And that's probably the best way. So if you connect via social media, you're going to get the daily updates. We publish approximately 10 articles a week. And we're incredibly active on social media. We have a really, really great team. So I recommend to go on there just to follow up. And if anyone has any questions or wants to speak with us directly, just send us a message. We'll get it through any social media channel. Wonderful. Yeah, I invite everyone who's listening to this uh, this podcast to definitely get in, get in contact 
Henry and his team has a, a wealth of knowledge as sort of demonstrated by this podcast. So yeah, definitely get in touch. And there's a lot of valuable information available across a range of platforms. So get in touch and, um, and get educated. Thanks again. Well, thanks very much, Aidan. And I appreciate you taking the time to speak to me.